Hey, Sophia. Hi, Franz. I'm very happy to be back on stage with you. It was great fun recording the Duck Six podcast some time ago, and today I'm very much looking forward to discussing one of the hottest topics in the market. Today, eight at three. Well, I'm glad to be here too. Let's dive in. What would be your elevator pitch on eight at three? Hmm. Well, from the top of my head, I'd say it's a proposal for a directive, and its aim is to tackle the use of so-called shell entities, which are presumed to be misused for tax avoidance or even evasion purposes. The directive is essentially about imposing reporting obligations on companies regarding their level of substance, and this will allow the authorities to identify shell entities lacking adequate substance and impose certain tax consequences on them. Well, I think that's a great summary. On the consequences, so one key item uh, a lot of people take away from the study of the proposal is that shell entities in Luxembourg may be denied access to double tax treaties or even EU tax directives, and this can obviously have a significant impact on the level of investment returns. Oh yes. Most clients are definitely concerned in one way or another by this proposal and have reached out to get our first views on their structures. They are all aware that this is a first draft of the proposal and it may well be that the wording will be amended before being published. There is a lot of lobbying effort going on, you know. There is about 45 consultation papers from different EU professional associations in reaction to the proposal. So it's pretty difficult to give definitive views at this stage. But what about your clients' reactions? Well, I receive similar feedback. I think clients are concerned because, given the broadness of the drafting of the proposal, a lot of Luxembourg companies could potentially come within the scope of ATAD 3. So they would not only face increased tax compliance work, which always comes at a certain cost, but also potentially face severe tax consequences. I mentioned the example of losing access to double tax treaties and EU tax directives before. At the same time, I think there's a lot of hope uh, that the proposal will change to take into account sector-specific elements. I think that the biggest frustrating point actually commonly shared by clients and advisors is that the current drafting does not take into account industry norms at all. Okay, um, could you maybe expand a little bit on this? Like, what exactly do you mean? Sure. So we have many clients that have set up shop in Luxembourg. They often reach significant levels of substance in Luxembourg, including within the meaning of ATA3, which focuses on premises, bank accounts in the EU, and directors or employees that are tax resident in Luxembourg or in the immediate surroundings of Luxembourg. So these clients do have employees, they do rent offices, and they do appoint their own directors, as well as non-executive independent directors. So for these clients, the substance requirements set by the proposal would often be met at the level of a single entity, but not at the level of all entities composing the same group. The issue, however, with ATA3 is that the current drafting of the proposal focuses on entities individually rather than on the level of substance that would be achieved by a group of entities in a specific jurisdiction. Let's take an example. Many of our AIF clients use a setup whereby it is an internal servicing company or their AIFM that would employ people, rent office space and provide 
a certain number of services to SPVs, holding companies, sitting under an alternative investment fund vehicle to make the investments. And in our view, there's actually a risk that those SPVs or Luxembourg holding companies could cross the three gateways under Article 6 of the proposal, become subject to reporting obligations, and ultimately be denied treaty access or access to EU tax directives. Good point. And on that, before we start using ATAT3 jargon, I know you mentioned the term gateways, I think we should present the ATAT3 analysis grid. We don't want our audience to think that we're all over the place, right? I think that's a very good idea, Sophia. Let's put some structure in this conversation. Okay, so I see ATAT3 like a highway with many exits. If you are able to take an exit, then no adverse tax consequences might apply. Now, this being said, you may still have to meet certain reporting obligations. So I start by looking at whether my client can exit the highway at the first exit, which is the one on carve-outs or exclusions, if you wish. I check whether my client company may be carved out or excluded from the application of ATAT3 altogether. And if not, I move on to the second exit, which is the three gateways test. If the company doesn't cross the three gateways test, this means that the entity is not deemed to be at risk of being misused for tax avoidance or evasion purposes. And I can't stop my analysis there. However, if an entity crosses the three gateway tests, reporting obligations will apply unless you are able to take the third exit on the highway, which is the one on the exemption. The exemption would involve clients to actively request an exemption from ATAT 3 from the authorities by providing certain elements of proof, which may involve some number crunching. So if this is not possible, the fourth exit of my analysis is the heart of ATAT 3. This step allows me to check whether the entity meets the indicators of minimal substance. If it does, the entity is presumed to have minimum substance. And if it does not, it will be presumed not to have minimum substance. But the entity will still be able to exit ATAT 3 on the fifth exit, which is the one on the rebuttal of this presumption by providing certain additional supporting evidence. Well, Sophia, that's a lot to digest. But uh, I think that a lot of people will remember the highway with five exits. And let me start with the first exit, which you named exclusions or carve-outs. So the ones a lot of people currently focus on are the regulated financial undertakings, companies which have a transferable security admitted to trading or listed on a regulated market, as well as holding undertakings that are resident for tax purposes in the same member state as their shareholders. And there's actually an additional category which is worth uh, mentioning, and it is the category of undertakings with at least five own full-time equivalent employees. So if we look at what regulated financial undertakings cover, and uh, don't worry, Sophia, I won't list them all, I just wanted to mention AIFs, AIFMs, credit institutions, insurance companies, and SSPEs within the meaning of the securitization regulation. Okay, I noticed you mentioned AIFs, but would the holding companies sitting below the AIF be carved out too? Well, looking at the definition, then the answer is clearly no. Uh, holding companies would not automatically fall under the same definition. 
Interestingly, when you look at the consultation papers, you can see that there's a lot of lobbying effort being put into uh, you know, the extension of the AIF exclusion to underlying holding companies and SPVs. Alfie, for instance, strongly advocates uh, this amendment to the proposal. But there is another exclusion that could potentially apply to holding companies, provided that they are resident in the same jurisdiction as their shareholders. And looking at this specific exclusion, you get the impression that it would be sufficient to set up a double-layer Luxco structure to exclude the bottom Luxco investing into a foreign company from the scope of ATAT3. Now, we doubt that this was actually the European Commission's intention, and there are still interpretation difficulties around this specific exclusion. Personally, I think that there will be many situations in which holding companies or SPVs won't be able to take the exclusion or carve out exit on the highway, Sophia. Yes, well, in which case we then move on to the three gateway tests, which is exit number two on the ATAD3 highway. In a nutshell, the gateway test looks at three cumulative conditions or questions. First, whether or not at least 75% of the entity's income is passive, and the technical word here is relevant income accrued during the preceding two years. That is, for instance, interest, dividends, real estate-related income, etc. Second, whether or not the entity is engaged in cross-border activities. And finally, third, whether the entity outsourced the administration of its day-to-day -day operations and the decision-making on significant functions, and did so in the preceding two tax years. Now, I find the latter criterion on outsourcing quite difficult to interpret. Well, let me reassure you, Sophia, uh, you are not alone. So there's clearly a need for clarification. What we can say at this stage is that the proposal seems to provide for a cumulative outsourcing condition. So the entity would have to outsource the administration of day-to-day -day operations and its decision-making on significant functions to cross the third gateway. So there are two big questions which we are currently asking ourselves. The first question is, what can a company or what types of functions can a company outsource without crossing the third gateway? And the second big question is whether the proposal targets both internal and external outsourcing models. Article 6 of the proposal, which is dealing with the three gateways, is silent on this specific point. But when you look at the preamble of the proposal, then you get the impression that the proposal targets both the internal outsourcing to associated enterprises and the external outsourcing to third parties. And this is likely to drag a lot of companies into the net of ATAD3, albeit on an unjustified basis, because it bluntly ignores that a lot of groups purportedly centralize certain functions in one single entity and operate an internal outsourcing model simply because this is the most efficient way of operating their business. Hmm, it's still pretty vague to me. But based on the preamble, I think it's worth noting that the outsourcing of bookkeeping functions or other ancillary services alone should not lead to the crossing of the third gateway. 
The third gateway is crossed when core management activities are no longer carried out using own resources at the level of the entity itself. The preamble says the outsourcing of administration, management, correspondence and legal compliance services would indicate that a given undertaking does not have sufficient own substance to carry out core management activities. So the more functions are insourced, the better. I think it would be really helpful if the proposal could be changed to avoid that companies outsourcing internally to other associated enterprises cross the third gateway. And by the way, this may then also require an amendment of the associated enterprises definition. For instance, uh, in an AIF type of structure, it is not clear at all whether an internal servicing company or alternative investment fund manager can be considered as an associated enterprise over Luxembourg holding company or SPV sitting under an alternative investment fund vehicle. Hmm, yeah, so hmm, based on what you just said, in particular, looking at the uncertainty around how the outsourcing criterion should be construed, I'm not convinced we could solidly rely on the gateway test to get out of the um, ATAT 3 application. Therefore, my advice to clients is that to be on the safe side, they should start thinking about whether their entities meet the indicators of minimum substance. I think you're right. However, before we look into the indicators of minimum substance, I just wanted to briefly mention the exemption exit number three on the highway. So the exemption is different from the carve-out or the exclusions, which focus more on the status, the activities or the setup of the relevant undertaking. For the exemption to apply, an undertaking will have to lodge a request with the tax authorities together with certain evidencing documents. And these documents actually will have to compare the tax liability of a given structure or group with and without its interposition. So if the interposition does not result in the reduction of the tax liability of the structure or the group, then the exemption should in principle be granted for one year and there's a possibility to extend the exemption for additional five years if the facts and circumstances remain unchanged, of course. So this is actually all I wanted to say on the exemption article. I think that the expectation is that only few clients will opt for this exemption also because of timing reasons, because you actually don't know when the response letter from the Luxembourg tax authorities or foreign tax authorities will land into your letterbox. And this response letter may well arrive at a date that is later than the date on which you would like to make an actual investment and on the date on which you would like to have certainty that you get access to a double tax treaty or an European tax directive. But Sophia, you mentioned the indicators of minimum substance under ATA 3. What are they all about? Yes, well, let us dive into the heart of ATA 3. The indicators of minimum substance laid down by the draft directive are threefold. The entity must have own premises or premises for exclusive use. Now, what does exclusive use mean? Does every single company need an own lease or sublease agreement? This is unclear, and I guess this is what you meant when you said the draft doesn't take into account industry norms. It seems pretty unreasonable and not in line with a lot of industry norms to require SPVs to each have own dedicated office space with a door 
a computer and a desk. But, well, it is what it is. The second indicator of minimum substance is that a company must have a known and active bank account within the EU. The meaning of active bank account is unfortunately not clarified in the proposal. Now, what if companies are involved in transactions with third countries and have active bank accounts there, and the one in Luxembourg is, say, used to cover operational expenses only? Would this mean that the Luxembourg bank account would not be active? Well, we don't know. And finally, the third indicator of minimum substance is that a company must satisfy certain conditions with respect to its directors or employees. Now, when I think about directors, I can think of three types of directors we commonly see in Luxembourg. First, directors, which are also at the same time employed by another group company. Then, second, directors, which are provided by external service providers. And third, independent directors. One of the minimum substance criteria is that the company must have at least one director that is not an employee of and does not sit on the board of other unrelated companies. This criterion may not be met by directors employed by corporate service providers, nor by independent directors, as they would typically sit on a variety of boards of unrelated companies. But that would not be an issue as long as at least one director is not an employee of and does not sit on the board of another unrelated company. One would expect that this would typically be the case for directors acting only for one single group or manager in the AIF world. Well, I agree that this should be the expectation, but the authors of the proposal did not necessarily take into account the economic reality, for instance, of the AIF sector. If you look at the typical AIF structure, you would very often have one or more directors that would sit on the board of the internal servicing company or AIFM, as well as on the board of a number of SPVs sitting under different investment funds. In light of the current drafting of the proposal, SPVs sitting under one specific investment fund may not necessarily be treated as associated enterprises of the internal servicing company or AIFM or SPVs sitting under different investment funds. And therefore, the third substance indicator would potentially not be met. So this issue has been clearly communicated to the European Commission by a number of professional associations and we are actually hopeful that the proposal will be amended to allow directors sitting on the board of various companies that are managed by the same sponsor to meet the third substance requirement. Right, understood. Okay, so let's wrap up on the directors. Apart from what we just discussed, our audience should note that the director would also have to be resident in Luxembourg or the immediate surroundings. He would have to be qualified and authorized to take decisions and actively and independently use such authorization. Okay, well, just before we move on, um, I just wanted to mention that the third substance requirement is also met if the majority of full-time equivalent employees of an undertaking are resident in Luxembourg or the immediate surroundings. That being said, I think that very often employees on the payroll of a holding company, for instance, will not be full-time employees. And therefore, I well do not expect this alternative criterion to be met, in particular in the AIF sector. I think people will try to rely more on the directors fulfilling the third substance requirement. Yes, I would definitely agree. So 
In terms of compliance now, I've read that the entities which pass the gateway test must declare whether they meet the indicators of minimum substance in their annual tax return. Now, do you think it will be sufficient to tick the boxes in the tax returns? Unfortunately not, uh, Sophia. It's not a simple box-ticking exercise. There's a bit more to it. Uh, taxpayers will need to provide documentary evidence together with their annual tax returns, so information on the qualification of directors, at the address and type of premises used to carry out the activities of the company, and also information on the outsourced business activities will have to be communicated to the relevant tax authorities. And if the indicators of minimum substance are proven to the satisfaction of the tax authorities, then the taxpayer will be presumed to have minimum substance for the tax year, and this then also means that no adverse tax consequences would apply. So if the taxpayer does not provide satisfactory documentary evidence to the tax authorities, they will presume the taxpayer not to have minimum substance for the year, but that presumption can be rebutted. Now, this can be done by providing additional supporting evidence of the business activities. Such rebuttal would be valid for five years. The additional evidence should include, among other things, information about the employee profiles. Now, I think there is a fair probability that a lot of Luxembourg SPVs will not have employees at all. So although tempting, my view is that the rebuttal procedure will be open only to a limited number of entities in Luxembourg. I totally agree. So what happens if an undertaking is presumed not to have minimum substance and does not rebut such presumption? Well, in that case, there will be tax consequences that will apply both in the member state of the undertaking in scope as well as in other member states. If Luxembourg is the country of residence of a shell entity, then the consequence will be that the Luxembourg tax authorities will refuse to issue a tax residency certificate or they will issue a tax residency certificate with certain reservations in it. And ultimately, this will then prevent the shell entity from accessing double tax treaties and European tax directives. Yes, that makes sense and closely ties in with the sanction to be applied by the EU target jurisdiction, which will consist in disregarding the provisions of double tax treaties and EU directives providing for reduced withholding tax rates. Whereas the EU member state of the shareholder of the shell entity will have to tax the passive income of the shell entity as if it had directly accrued to the shareholder and credit any tax paid in the jurisdiction of the shell entity. When I look at the consequences more closely, I'm really wondering whether it was necessary to launch ATA 3. So the consequences we just talked about already seem to be provided for by the PPT, the GAR, and also the CFC rules that were recently introduced by ATAT1. Yeah, totally agree. And therefore, ATAT3 rules have been widely criticized as creating overlaps between rules, imposing even more administrative burden and chronic legal uncertainty. There was one final question I wanted to ask, Sophia. And the question is on the tax consequences um, in the context of a double-layer Luxco structure uh, where the Lux Subco holds an investment, for instance, in a Spanish company. So in that specific scenario, would it be possible to achieve the minimum substance required by ATA3 at the level of 
the top locks go only and force the target jurisdiction, so in our example Spain, to disregard locks subco, which is a shell entity, and apply the double tax treaty or EU tax directive with locks topco, as if it had invested directly in Spanish co. I agree that this would make a lot of sense, and I also think it is within the spirit of ATAT 3. However, as for the other points, this is unfortunately not clearly set out in the text of the proposal. Understood. As mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, there is hope that the EU legislator will take into account the comments that were made by the various professional associations in reaction to this ATAT 3 proposal, and that concepts will be clarified before the final text will be published. And on this hopeful note, um, I would say let's reconvene to discuss ATAT 4, Sophia. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thanks, Franz. Thanks, Sophia. See you soon. Mm-hmm.